Hello and welcome to 100% Real with Ruby. Today I have Dr. Gary Mendoza on and he is the goat of behavior change, of mindset change, of anything, anything to do with change that kind of behooves us because it's like this elusive goal that we want to change to this dream destination. But there are so many things that pull us back, so many things that keep us trapped. And we were just talking before I started the podcast on what Gary sees to be one of the biggest barriers for reaching our results. And it's not in forming the habit, just like it's not in starting any challenge, starting any plan, because the starting is easy. It's what happens after that initiation. But something I think that will be really important to first touch on before we go into how easy it is to relapse is why is it that we become more prone to this relapse? Is it to do with our mindset behind the change? Is it to do with our motives behind the change? What usually precedes this tumultuous flat? And with that, you can reintroduce yourself again as well. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for inviting us on. Uh, so hi everyone, um, I'm Dr. Gary Mendoza. I've been a personal trainer for 28 years now. I've got a first degree in applied human nutrition and a PhD in men's weight management. And I'm a qualified sports dietitian with Sports Dietitians Australia. So I've got a pretty kind of broad range of clients from elite athletes right through to general public. Um, one of the things that kind of got me into behavior change was I can screen people and and kind of decide whether they're ready to change or not. And when we did this, we did this in New Zealand, actually, with the Maori South Pacific Islanders. And we found that, yep, we can screen people, decide. But the Manawatu region wanted to use the research and use it as their weight management product. So they said to me, well, what do we do if somebody's not ready to change? And I thought, oh, never really thought of that. And so that's really how I got into behavior change in depth, because it was like, finding skills that will enable people to make that initial change but then more importantly allow them to, to maintain those changes so off the back of my phd i've now trained in motivational interviewing and i was fortunate to be trained by stephen rolnick and bill miller the two guys who actually invented mi basically uh, i've trained in counseling and in cbt so now i've got a pretty good handle on what's required for behavior change so to answer your question, why do people backslide? I think part of it is because it's a thing we call barrier underestimation. So when people start a program, and it's a recognized scientific phenomena, psychological phenomena, people underestimate how difficult it will be to lose weight, get fit, whatever it might be. It's almost like we forget all the other times we've tried to get fit or we've tried to lose weight. It's almost like our brain goes, ah, they don't count. We won't, we won't look at those. And so people come in with a real enthusiasm and kind of they're highly motivated to go, yeah, I'm definitely going to do it. This is going to be the time. And often they're going to they're looking to their trainer to be there, the person that's going to get them there. And, and that's about the last thing that's going to happen. The trainer can point them in the right direction, but the effort is going to be on them. And so they come in with this kind of really highly motivated. And then as the weeks go by, real life happens, or as the Americans like to say, shit happens. And bit by bit, things get kind of teased away. So they might have been doing something. They might have been getting up early every morning to go for a walk or for a run. And then they think, oh, well, I, well, I won't quite do that. I'm not quite up to that this morning. So I'll give it a miss this morning. And so basically what happens is they ch chip away at some of the good behaviors. Now, the reason this happens is you when you come into when you've kind of put weight on when you're unfit, whatever, you will have established a whole bunch of habits that sustain that kind of type of lifestyle. And the brain does that on purpose because it's trying to make life easy. The brain likes to be able to kind of get on with other work because you've only got only about eight to 10 percent of your brain is conscious work. The rest of what the brain does is done at a subconscious or unconscious level and so that's why we form habits it's to allow the brain to kind of push everything into the subconscious and unconscious 
because if we had to do everything consciously, brain would be frazzled. We would not be able to cope. And so if you think of some of the things that you do every day and you really don't think about it. So the one, the example I always give is if I was to give you a piece of paper and say to you, put your signature on there, give you a pen, you go, oh, yeah, no problem and sign it. Now, if you think about what happens, has to happen for you to be able to sign your name on a piece of paper, it's huge. You have to be able to pick up the pen in the right way, hold it with the right amount of force, but not too much, hold it at the right angle. You then have to be able to place that pen onto the paper. And in order to do that, your shoulder muscles have got to move to the right place. So is the elbow, so is the wrist, fingers are in the right position. You've now got to coordinate the movement so as the signature is formed. And so all those muscles are now making changes, changes in tension in the tendons and ligaments and everything, and you form the signature. But you don't think about anything. You don't sit there thinking, all right, hang on, I've got to move my shoulder muscle to here and I've got oh, I must flex the elbow a bit there. You just do it. That's all habitual. And so there are thousands of things you can think that you do every day that you really just don't think about. And so that's why we have habits. Now, I'll often hear people say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to change my bad habit. You can't. That is a complete misnomer. You cannot change a bad habit. You can overwrite it with a new one, but you cannot change it. It is always there. This is why when people maybe try to stop smoking, they often relapse. They go back to the old habit. And the way I like to look at it is if you think of your brain as a computer, it's got a whole bunch of software programs running in there. And so if you think of something like your PC, every now and again, Windows will bring out an update and you install that update and hopefully your PC works happily and all's great. However, from time to time, they'll bring out an update and it doesn't quite work. And so then they'll tell you revert to the old software. And so you then reverse the action, you go back to the older version of the software. That's exactly what your brain's doing with habits. It's it's trying the new one, the new software, if you like. But if it's not quite working or it's a bit difficult, the brain says, you know, I don't like this. Let's go back to the old version. The old version will be what we kind of euphemistically call your bad habit. And so what you need to do is not only do you need to overwrite it, but you need to establish it and make sure that it's working properly so as the brain then doesn't have to think about it. And once the brain's happy that it doesn't have to think about it, then it won't revert to the old version. But be under no illusion, the old version is always there. It's also why I like to say you need to update your hardware, not just upgrade the software. The hardware needs updating as well. But I love the part in there where you said that people underestimate how hard change is. And just like you mentioned with the writing of the pen, that's easy because you've been doing it for ages. But if a baby was to try to write, even though it's like a baby can't pick up a pen, but it's like they have to learn a whole new pattern of doing this and over and over again. And if you remember back at school days, learning how to write certain words, getting a pen license, all those sort of things. But in underestimating how hard change is that same like idea can be applied to people that you see on social media they're doing the things just like I had a conversation with one of my girls today and that she said that she didn't want to reach out for help with the struggles that she was having this was when she started she's killing it now everything's everything's a ritual she's turned it into a ritual with her food and this is a thing you don't just focus on the end outcome or the product, you focus on the process, creating a ritual out of it. And she's finally done that. But the reason, if she never reached out to me, she would still be struggling. And this was eight weeks of struggling because she didn't reach out. She finally said that she needs to change something because I kept asking her what's going on, what's going on. And then we were able to figure that out. But that's the thing, her reasoning was, I thought that it should just be easy to sort out because look at you guys doing it. I see you doing it and you already are in that mindset of everything's easy. So I thought that I should have already had my shit together because I got the stuff I needed to do. And it's like, no, it's not that easy. Then relate that to other people that are smashing it in their training. They know how to train to failure. They know how to do the exercises. 
if you go in expecting it to be easy, that isn't allowing yourself a great chance to develop that habit. And this is going to now feed in because I want to get your thoughts on that, but this is going to feed into what you just related to in that if the way you change habits is to replace the old ones with new ones, then is change only the product of repetition? And how do you actually change the habits and mindsets of people then if you can't just create one out of thin air and say, I want to do this? Um, first thing you do is you analyze what the habit is. A habit has always got three components. And the first one is a trigger. So the trigger is this is what tells the brain this is what we're going to do next. So if you think about um, snacking, for instance, a trigger for snacking can often be boredom. And so that's the trigger. The, then the next part is there's always an action. And so the action will be some type of behavior, something that you do. In this case, snacking, going to the cupboard, having a chocolate bar, having biscuits, whatever it might be. And then finally, there's normally a reward. And the reward will be, um, in the case of boredom, oh, it's relieved the boredom and the sugar gives me a bit of a hit, so I feel good for that. So we've got the three components. And so now, if you're looking to change that, you don't go, oh, well, I'll throw all that lot out the window. You have to look at each component and go, which bit is kind of pliable? Which bit can we change? So boredom, you most probably can't change that as a trigger. There are always going to be times when you're going to get bored. So in this instance, we can't change the trigger. What we can change, however, is the action. So we could change the snacking for something else. We could kind of add. Um, I always tell people to get get a to do list of things that they can do in 10 minutes if they're bored. And I do literally mean like 10 minutes. You know, it might be clean out the cupboard, go through their old paperwork, whatever it is, just a long list of all 10 minute jobs that they keep putting off. And I said, whenever you're bored and you think, oh, God, I'm bored, I want a snack. Think to yourself, do you really want a snack or could I do one of my little actions? And so they do one of the actions. And then the reward for that will be they feel better about it. They've completed something. They've ticked something off their to-do list. So you can sometimes change. Action is normally the most, um, is normally the easiest to change. Sometimes it's the reward, though. Sometimes people will go to the gym and they'll do their 40 minutes of training or whatever. And because they've done that, they feel great about it. So they think, oh, great, I'll have a takeaway or... I can have a couple of beers now because I burnt all those calories in the gym. And so in that case, we can change the reward and, and use something else. Finally, it could be a trigger that's time related. So a time related trigger would be every time I get in from work at five, six o'clock, the first thing I always do is make myself a cup of tea and I have a couple of biscuits with it. And that's kind of a habitual routine. So the time we can change what happens at that particular time. And so we can change what the trigger is. So that the first part of changing any habit is deciding, well, why do I do it? And what do I get from it? And if you can kind of work that bit out, then you can kind of start to work on, okay, how could I, which bits could I substitute? So you're not kind of coming up with anything new. You're just taking what's already there and changing components of it. If I can throw two different questions at you on the same topic, the first one, because you just mentioned breaking it apart, what is the importance and where does the importance of fitting in writing or journaling, putting things down on paper fit into this? Because we know our brains can't organize things. We need our visual pathways to integrate with that. Maybe you can talk a bit more about the science of that, as well as bringing in the importance of environment, the mindset, and your approach behind that habit because a lot of people come at it with the wrong mindset and wrong approach where it's not attached to values maybe you can bring in the importance of values with that and also the importance of identity getting people into that readiness state in a way that they aren't setting themselves up for that disappointment i think one of the so one of the components i talked about there was reward and sometimes people go oh yeah but i like that as one of the things you can use as a reward when you're kind of really kind of focused on a new behavior is what are your goals? And so you must have really good goals set up. 
and not only must they be written down that's first thing if it, if it, i always live by the mantra because i'm x forces i live by the mantra if it's not written down it never happened because people will tell you to do something when you're in the forces and then when it all goes pear shaped they go well i didn't really say that or i didn't really mean that and so as a senior nco i would always say to an officer if they gave me an order i'd say can i have that on a memo please because now if it goes pear shaped i can go well, there you go you told me to do it it's in writing so if it's not written down it never happened so make sure your goals are written down so that's the first part but the thing that makes the goal really a useful tool if you like for behavior change is it should be emotionally anchored and so when you think about your goal whether that be getting into a smaller size dress or being able to run a 10k or whatever it might be. I mean, it could be any number of things, being able to play with the grandkids, I don't know. That must be associated with a feeling, with an emotion. And so I, I there's a couple of steps you kind of need to do. The first thing is you need to think of an event in your life that really makes you smile, makes you happy. It can be anything that's happened in your life. For some people, it will be their first kid. For others, it might be their graduation. It could be winning a tournament, it, anything, anything that you can think of that really kind of brings you a smile to your face. And I always say to people, and it sounds a bit hippie, but I always say to it, it's your happy place. You need to be able to find where your happy place is. And so I tell them literally, and all you have to do is every day for a week or so, maybe a couple of weeks, just sit down for five minutes, close your eyes and visualize that happy place. And not only think about how happy you were, but think about what the smells were, what the feelings were, how you felt, everything. Really put yourself back in that moment. And I'll say, you'll know when you've got it, because I'll be able to say to you, go to your happy place, and it'll almost bring a smile to your face instantly. I can kind of switch mine on and off, because I know what it is. Once you've got that, what you then do is, for the next few weeks, you now think about achieving your long-term goal. So it might be, as I say, being able to run a 10K, getting into a smaller dress size, being able to get into your wedding dress, whatever it might be. Um, and now you think about that moment, but you associate it with all the feelings from your happy place. And so you link the two together. And so that new goal becomes emotionally anchored. And you want to get to a point where you, I can say to you, think about your goal, and that brings that smile to your face. Now that's got an emotion to it. Now, how do you use that as a reward? Simply, when you complete something, you complete the action part of the habit. You just think about when you've completed it, has that moved you towards your goal? And of course it has, because you've done an action that's kind of in line with what you want. And that brings a smile to your face. And so now every time, and now you can start to use this right across your whole kind of daily routine. If you go into the supermarket and you're trying to decide, should I go for the healthier choice or should I buy some biscuits or chocolate or some lemonade, Coke, whatever it might be, you can just say to yourself, does this move me towards my goal or away from it? And because obviously the unhealthy choices are moving you away from your goal, nine times out of 10, you will make a better choice. And so emotionally anchored goals are a really key component of making successful lifestyle change because they allow you to always ask that question really quickly to yourself does this move me towards my goal or away from it this is why emotions are so important and why feelings are so important and why i harp on so much about feelings we put so much value on numbers on figures all that crap is not going to get you anywhere if there is no feeling behind it or emotion behind it which is emotionally anchored goals is just like valued based goals you need values are feelings they're emotions because you move like it's almost like when people say you need to have your five wires okay cool you want to fit into that dress but why what feeling is that going to bring you when you have that emotion so deeply entrenched in how you want to feel you realize it's not really about losing whatever or fitting into that dress anymore it's that you want to feel confident which is going to lead to so much more than just the little black dress so when that is your emotionally anchored goal, now something that you said something that just sparked what I heard on a podcast today, which was so powerful and I don't want to forget it. So I'm going to 
really put that here is that when you have values instead of just goals, there is no such thing as failing because you either move toward, like you said, or you move away from that value because family isn't something you can fail. Confidence, relationships, career, you don't just fail that. You're moving towards having more energy, being more present with your kids. And if what you're doing, having more structure in your food is now leading you to show up better at work, have more structure in your work itself, be more present with your partner because now you're more confident in your skin because now you've got your eating under control. Now you know that, hey, eating in this way makes me feel so good. My gut feels clear. I'm not bloated all the time. I have more energy. That is something that is emotionally rooted and anchored to help you move forward. Now, there's a question that I got submitted, which I think is a really great one. When we get sick, sad, injured, have family emergencies, how do we keep that habit if there's a break in repetition? And can the new habit continue to be formed and stabilized in those times when repetition is temporarily broken? Yeah, 100% it can, because it's all about how you deal with, I don't like to call it failure, That I mean, the, the proper term is actually a relapse. And I always say to people, don't don't call it failure, call it feedback. I say, and you actually need it. it. We cannot learn anything without something going wrong. Because when it goes wrong, we learn from that. And then we think, oh, right, okay, well, I won't do that next time, because it hurt or whatever so if you and the best analogy i can give you because everybody can kind of relate to it is riding a bike it's very rare that anyone at any age has got on a two-wheel bike and rode it first time generally people will fall off numerous times or they'll start with training wheels so they've got kind of a bit wobbly or their parents are running along behind them holding the seat and so each time they fall off or they have a bit of a wobble, the brain goes, oh, didn't expect that. I need to kind of adjust that a bit to kind of get it right. And then over the weeks and months, slowly the brain realizes, OK, these are all the adjustments I need to make for me to be successful at riding a bike. And now you've got a point where you can ride the bike. You've now established that habit because the brain has learned all the little nuances and it's able to kind of deal with all of them. And now you can comfortably ride a bike and you might not have ridden a bike for years, but I could most probably give you a bike now and you jump straight on and ride it. And so even though we've had a break of however many years, because that habit is so well established and so nuanced in terms of the brain understands all the things that can go wrong, but it knows how to handle them, you easily ride the bike. And so that's really what we're trying to do when we're trying to establish nutritional habits, fitness, exercise habits. We are learning all the nuances that might throw us off track. And if we persevere with it, ultimately, we'll get to a point where making those nutritional choices or making those fitness choices just become everyday to us. The problem is for a lot of people when they do have that. So when you're riding the bike and you initially fall off, you normally think to yourself, oh, well, I couldn't quite do it, but I'm going to stick with it or your parents kind of. Say, I just rub yourself down and crack on again and you, you give it another go. Trouble with fitness and nutrition is people often fall off the wagon a bit. So that's that first kind of bit of feedback, but they don't treat it as feedback. They treat it as failure and they think, oh, that's it. I've, I've screwed it up. Well, I might as well just carry on for today and have a few more takeaways and a bit more chocolate. I'll start again tomorrow. Then tomorrow comes round and they're thinking, oh, do you know what? I, I, I'll stick with what I am and I'll start again on Monday. And before you know it, Monday's ran and you've kind of totally blown it out of the water. Whereas if when you first had that initial kind of hiccup, as it were, you just sat and what I tell my clients to do is I said, what you want to do, if you have a really bad day and you end up kind of having the pizza and the glass of wine, don't worry about it. That is life. That will happen. All I want you to do is I want you to sit down at the end of the day and go, how could I have done that different? What could I have done to stop that happening? And I say, as long as you can learn one thing from it, and I don't care what that one thing is, it only needs to be one thing, 
that's been a really useful experience to you because now you've got a new tool that stops you falling off the wagon, so to speak. And I said over the months, you're going to have these relapses. But if each relapse is giving you a new tool, you're going to end up with a toolbox at the end of six months that's so comprehensive. There's no way you'll ever fall off again because you've now got all the tools in place. And now that habit will be solidly established because each time there's a little bump in the road, you'll just go, right, I know how to deal with that. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And so treating relapse as feedback is really important. There's a, a recognized psychological um, theory that is called the what the hell effect. And we know that when people fall off the wagon a bit and they have a really bad day, they go, oh, what the hell? I'm going to have a glass of wine. And then they, they, they have the glass of wine, but it doesn't make them feel any better. And so then they go, ah, oh, what the hell? That's me. I, I, I lack the willpower. I'm feeling a bit guilty. I sod it. I'll finish the wine. And the researchers that looked into the what the hell effect, they, they found that most people tried to deal with it with guilt. So they guilt themselves over it. Oh, I feel terrible. I'm rubbish at this. I've got no willpower. I'm not the right person for it. This type of language. But they found the best way to get over the what the hell effect was actually to treat yourself compassionately and just say to yourself, that's human nature. That's going to happen. Don't beat yourself up. Learn from it and move on. And they found that when people treated it like that, they generally stayed with the program. So it's all about how you're going to deal with those bumps in the road, as I call them, when they come along, because they will come along. And it's really important if you're looking at it from a coaching perspective that you talk to your clients about this when they first start working with you. Because if you leave it until the point where they have a relapse and then you're saying to them, oh, just treat it as a relapse, treat it as feedback, learn from it, blah, blah. It will sound disingenuous. It will sound like, oh, yeah, but you're just saying that because you're the coach and you want me to stay in your program. Now, if you've told them about it right at the start and we're kind of back to that barrier underestimation where they're coming to you and they're super confident. Oh, you're, I've heard you're a really good coach and you're going to be the one that's going to get me to my goals and all this. That's the point to talk to them about relapse. And you can say to them, like, OK, great. It's really good that you're that enthusiastic about it. But I want to talk to you about how you're going to manage your relapses. And they'll go. Oh, yeah, but I'm not going to relapse because I'm with you now and, and I know this is really going to work. And you kind of have to go, OK, that's fair enough. I accept that. But I'm telling you now it's going to happen. And this is how I want you to kind of manage it. And so then you talk to them about sitting down, thinking it through, blah, blah. If you've done that, when they have the relapse, six, 12, however many weeks down the line, it's a lot easier for you to go. Remember when we first got together, I talked to you about this and how you manage it. And they'll kind of go, it's in their brain somewhere. And they'll go, yeah, I do vaguely. And now they're more likely to engage with it. So it's really important to address relapse right at the start of the program and think, how am I going to manage that when it happens? Because it will happen. I loved the fact that you used the word persevere. And speaking about managing it, how about comfort food when you want carbs or sweets or whatever truly does comfort you in the times of stress what can replace those habits and how can you manage it what's the alternative i comfort food is an interesting one because comfort food is most probably coming from a place of poor diet because if you haven't made because often people go oh yeah but i get the real munchies at three o'clock or whatever it might be and and i say well I'm, i haven't got a problem with that because that's your brain saying to you your blood sugar's low do something about it. I said, but the choices you make at that point are going to be really important. But maybe what we should really look at is what does your overall diet look like? Because why are you getting those moments where you've got low blood sugar? And and some when often when people get low blood sugar, they're quite ag agitated. They become quite grumpy. And so they'll often make poorer choices. And then they'll beat themselves up for that because they've made the poorer choice. And so then they kind of they exasperate it again. So we're back to that. What the hell effect? What and so a lot of this is manage your diet properly in the first place, I think. What if it's stress? You're really stressed out. If you're stressed, then what's happening in a stress is you've got fight or flight response kicks in. 
And one of the things that happens with that is the brain sends signals to say, right, I'm in a kind of fight or flight mode here. It goes back to prehistoric times. And basically what the brain does is it says, I need good blood sugar levels at this point because I'm going to need to be able to either run to get away from the problem or I'm going to need to fight to kind of survive. And so it's a natural response then to go for food, generally high sugar foods as well, because that's going to boost the blood sugar. So you have to look at how you're managing the stress and what other things you could do. So I'm a big fan of mindfulness. I think mindfulness is great because it, it's very easy to learn and it's a really good tool for managing stressful moments. And it doesn't have to be anything blooming yogi or whatever. You can learn some real simple blooming mindfulness techniques. Like the one I really like, and I kind of do this every morning, is a body scan. And you literally just sit down, close your eyes and scan your whole body from your toes right the way up to your head. Every single muscle, tendon, ligament. And so you're thinking about all the things that are going on. How does that feel down there? What what feelings am I get and blah, blah. And by doing that, you're able to kind of get all the other rubbish out of your head. And just doing a quick five, 10 minutes mindfulness will often reduce stress massively because you, do, you often don't make optimal choices when you're stressed. And so having some coping tools is really important. So is it safe to say then that the mindset, identity and your intention behind wanting to create a habit, wanting to make change is really important and why just having weight loss as a goal or a scale number as a goal or anything that's unrealistic is where people fall off? I think you have to accept that I, I agree with you. I don't like weight loss as a goal. I, I know it's the thing we always use and, and I, two reasons really. People go and, and we do it all the time and sit on everything. Lose weight, do this, blah, blah, blah. For starters, nobody wants to lose weight. That is a complete poor use of the English language because what you actually want to lose is fat. So we shouldn't be talking about weight loss anyway. We should be talking about fat loss. And the reason I kind of really advocate that is if you're losing more than a pound to two pound a week, you're not losing fat. You're losing lean tissue, you're losing fluid, whatever it might be, but you're certainly not losing that much fat. So we need to get real about what we want to do. And so that's quite important. Um, and then, oh, what was, so yeah, so that's not realistic, but it's it's what you want to get from it. So people, so like you said about like the little black dress, it's like, well, it's all very well being able to get into the little black dress, but what does that give you? And actually, when you really start to kind of think about it, it's like, do you know what? It's not about the little back dress, is it? It's about feeling better about myself. It's my self-confidence. It's my ability to be able to go and play with the grandkids or whatever. But we want to pin it on a number. And I'm not a big fan of that because numbers will only take you so far. I always say to trainers and my clients, I say, OK, yeah, it's great that you want to lose that weight. And that's a good starting point. But think about what that will give you and think about the health benefits of it, because often people overlook that. They'll be training for four weeks or whatever, and they've improved their diet and they go, no, I'm not really seeing much difference on the scales. And I'll say to them, how do you feel in yourself? And they go, oh, well, I feel like I've got a little bit more energy and I'm able to do this and I'll do that. And it's like, so you're starting to see some health benefits then. So shift the focus of why you want to do it and get a real clear picture of what it is you're trying to get out of this because nine times out of ten it's not the weight it's it's a whole bunch of other stuff and really kind of digging into that is quite important and as a coach it's your role to help the client find what those real reasons are behind that and so using things like Socratic questioning or as I always call it the annoying kid because when you and, and what I mean by that is if you if you say to a child, I'll do this, a child will often say, well, why? And then you kind of have to give a reason. And what you might give a, a reason, well, it's, it's good for you, it'll keep you safe. Yeah, but why? And then you kind of have to try and explain that. And if you keep saying, yeah, but why? You'll slowly dig down through that kind of superficial layer and you'll find out what's really going on underneath. 
And so just having a really good in-depth conversation and listening to the client, helping them find their real reasons is is quite well, it's therapeutic anyway, but also it, they are more likely to stick with whatever they're doing if if that kind of true reason has been uncovered. Triggered an amazing thought right there. And if you're because there's a lot of time your response to the little toddler would be, because I just want you to freaking do it. <laughs> but if that's going to be your retaliation to the questions and you're just like, because I just want to do it. Question now is, is that goal actually yours or is it what you think should be your goals? Because a lot of the time we chase goals that aren't really ours. And if that's the case, then you're never going to stay on a consistent plan for that. And I guess this will feed into the next couple of questions that, feed into each other. And that's how I just mentioned the mindset, the identity and the intentions. They are the most important part to sustain change. But then there's on the other side, once you've developed a habit, which can also feed into you falling back into that habit once you've been taken off the path, is recognizing these amazing changes and progress, how to celebrate it internally, think more positive about the changes and success, rather than feeling like a fraud because there are people that can't feel positive about it and that's usually a big cause of self-sabotage because you're not celebrating the changes and it's almost like you don't deserve this and then she goes on to say but even though the scales haven't moved much at all this year and I lost so much before and I look completely different so much success elsewhere how does someone recognize and change their thoughts as we always relate the scales to success. I think it's shifting that mindset really early away from weight and everything. It's kind of, I want you to think more about what you're able to do, what you're capable of doing, how you feel in the morning. One of the things I do um, with athletes, but you can apply it to anyone, is I get them to keep mood and energy diaries. Now that might that might sound, ooh, that sounds a bit kind of heavy duty, but actually, it's dead simple. You literally get a bit of paper. And what you do is when you first wake up on a scale of one to 10, you score your mood with one being you feel rubbish and 10 being great. I'm in the best place it could possibly be. You literally just put a number there. You also think about your energy levels. And one being I, I do not want to get out of bed and 10 being I'm jumping out of bed and buzzing. So you score that. You then midday you do the same thing again where's my mood at scale of one to ten where's my energy at one to ten you then finally do one in the evening five six o'clock just quickly scribble it on a bit of paper and then you do a last one just before you go to bed so it's it's a 10 second process you never look at your previous scores because if you do you will always try and relate to that oh, well i scored myself a seven this morning but i think i'm more of a six now you must always do it blind because your previous score will always influence you. So now over the course of a week, two weeks, you'll have a whole bunch of scores, your average energy kind of score, your average mood score. Now, the reason I do that is I want some baseline data because especially when I'm working in nutrition, I'll often get athletes to make some changes around their kind of pre or post training or whatever. And when they come back to me a week or so later, a couple of weeks, maybe they go, oh, I don't really notice any change. And that's because it's so imperceptible that, you know, you, if I was to say to you now, last week when you had breakfast, how did you feel? You'd be like, how do you expect me to remember that? I'm the same as th this week because you've got nothing to reference it to. However, if you've been keeping a mood and an energy diary, you've now got a baseline. As the weeks and months go by. You can now refer back to that. And even though I could sit you down three months down the line and go, how are you feeling now? How's the program working? And you might go, well, I think it's OK, but I'm not seeing that much progress or blah, blah. I'll go, right, well, let's have a look at your mood and energy scores. And nine times out of ten, when you look at those, they will have improved. It might have only been one or two points, but nonetheless, something has shifted. And so having kind of hard data that you can refer back to is really helpful. And it's also why journaling is so, so you can kind of do this scoring alongside your journaling, because then you can look back three months previous and go, 
wow, I was thinking like that and I didn't really realise that. And now look at the way I think, look at the way I view things. So I think having hard baseline data is actually quite valuable because it allows you to get a realistic handle on what's really going on. Because sometimes with fitness and with nutrition, it's actually quite difficult to realise how far you've come. But if you've got data, you, you can't deny it. And we're back to that. If it's not written down, it never happened. If you've scored that at the start, and now three months down the line, your scores are higher, something's changed then. And whether you like to admit it or not, it has. And you've got data to prove it. And the beauty of that is your brain then sees that and goes, yeah, I've done a really good job. And now the brain starts to kind of go, do you know what? That's great. I'm, I am doing well. I freaking love all of that. I do the exact same thing. I get digestion, mood, energy. And my consistent question that I ask above all is how do you feel? It's not just the fact that the scales are the limiting factor here. It's just having appearance-based goals in general. That's the same as a little black dress. That's everything that we've just been saying. Just having a steady goals is not enough to keep you going. You need to have feeling-based goals because body image is never about the body. I've ha I have plenty podcasts on this. You can have the most amazing body and still not feel happy in it. You can chase lean, lean, lean and still want to get leaner because you are still not happy in that. Being lean or getting lean is not a valid goal. Well, it is a valid goal, but it's a ridiculous goal, just like the scales weight one. This is where self-talk is really important. And this can be a big reason why coaches are so valuable in this process, because the right coaches, the good coaches that do this stuff, the ones that have got gary's course done because he has a stages of change course i think normal people can normal people non-coaches i think non-coaches can also do that as well but this is this is where it all is the insides because it's the transformation on the inside that makes the one on the outside possible you can make all the transformation on the outside and still make zero progress because your inside stayed the same if you clicked your fingers and you got the gold body but nothing else in your life changed you're still going to be miserable when you get home at night. You're still going to be slugging your feet when you get to the work office in the morning. And coaches, the right ones, will teach you how to look for success outside of your little box, outside of your narrow definition. They'll show you progress in other ways. This is what I always help my girls with. I like shifting their mindset and I like injecting them with confidence because there is nothing that you can trade for that unshakable confidence, which... Again, same as relapse, you're going to have moments of that. You can have a great body image and still have bad body image days. You can have your habits all in line and still have bad habit days, which is why I really want you to now sing with me on the frustration of the post that goes around. It takes 21 days to create a habit and 66 to automate it. Go there for it. Absolutely no evidence in the literature, scientific literature, that says it takes this many days to form a habit there is absolutely none there is lots of kind of hypotheses around it might take this many weeks or that but i you if you look at reviews of habit literature you'll normally see figures quoted of anywhere from 150 odd days right through to 350 odd days and i think it very much depends on a the person what their mindset is but B, how long have they done this for? You know, if you've been doing something for 30, 40 odd years, you are not going to undo that in six weeks because the brain has well and truly got that ingrained. And so habits that have been there for longer, and this is just my kind of hypothesis on this, I think take longer to undo. And you have to really buy into this process of this is going to be a six month, one year, three year five-year deal and it's incremental but and and this is why i don't like coaches that sell the six week or the 12 week transformation program because it's like well, that's complete bs you, you're very unlikely to have changed the habit in six weeks and yeah you might have lost a few pounds in six weeks or 12 weeks with some magical diet program um but you're not going to maintain that you're going to go back to your old habits because that's what kept your brain comfortable. That's what kind of kept you comfortable and you'll revert to type. And so you kind of have to buy into this idea. It's a long-term deal. 
and it's very unlikely you're going to get instant answers but it's it's incremental so if you are doing things like journaling mood energy diaries you will see those changes they're very small and imperceptible almost but they are there and so it's really important when you start any program to not view it as oh well this is something i'm going to do to get fixed it's not you have to buy into the idea that this is going to be a new lifestyle for me this is going to be a new way of doing things and it might take me a long time to get to the point where I want to be and interestingly as you start to go through that kind of transformational change with diet with exercise activity your goals will shift because the brain is learning new things so what was really important to you on day one by the time we get to week 12 week 24 whatever it might be there might be a whole new focus in terms of oh actually it's this so one of the things in motivational interviewing that we look at every time you work with a client every time you have a consultation you go through certain processes the first one is engaging which is just getting on board with the client finding out how their week's been kind of making sure we've got good empathy the next phase is focus and we always do that phase regardless of how long we've been working with that client we always check in and make sure that the focus for this week is the same. And you might think, well, that, that's a bit daft because surely, you know, if somebody wants to lose weight, the focus is always going to be lose weight. It won't be. By the time you get to week six, eight, 12, whatever it is, and when you're talking about focus, their focus may have shifted from, well, I know it's my nutrition, but I want to look at this aspect of my nutrition. And so that focus is shifting all the time. And it's really important as a coach that you understand that your client's focus will move and you as a coach need to be on board with what that focus is and help them work towards that. I think this is really important for the clients themselves to understand as well because we stay so focused on our old goals and so riveted in our old, old mindset that we don't allow our goals to evolve. So I love that whole goals will shift and now maybe you guys can make sense of why you always hear me mention that goalposts will move that you need to allow yourself to accept this new goal it does not mean that you are giving up on your body it does not mean that you're going to gain weight lose progress blah 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 go back to where you were this is you evolving and i think this is the perfect way to sum this up if there is anything else you want to add to it but this is why the process is the whole damn goal the process is the whole damn goal not the product not the result not what you think your goal is. The process is the goal. That is life. Where do you want to see life at the end? Where do you want to be at the end? How do you want to feel at the end? Is there anything else you want to say about the importance of focusing on this process, on feels and on habits and what we want out of them to sum this whole thing up? And Yeah, I mean, I think the way to think of this is think back to when you were a teenager and what was important to you then. Is that as important to you now? And I guarantee it won't be. And that's part of that evolving. That's part of the, the process has changed. So what's important to you when you start as a teen, when you first start work or whatever it might be, that will change by the time you're in your early 20s. And by the time you're in your 30s, it'll be something else. And it's exactly the same with nutrition, with fitness. As you get fitter, as you improve your diet, you start to focus on other things it shifts all the time it's a continually moving target and you should be evolving with that and you, if you are then you're doing a good job if you're not evolving then you're going to end up dropping out the program because you need to evolve with the program so understanding how these changes happen and documenting them so this is why the journaling is so helpful is really important and you'll just grow as a person, you'll change as a person. And it may be that certain things that you used to think were really important, or even certain people that you used to think were really important, actually don't become as important to you because you're evolving, you're growing. So you kind of have to allow yourself to grow, not only physically, but actually mentally. It Lifestyle change is about mental change. And we always focus on nutrition and exercise, but actually that's the least important of the two. Because if you're not making the psychological changes, the other two won't follow. And so you've got to allow your brain to evolve and learn new skills. 
and you that's what kind of keeps us going as human beings it's like we're evolving we're learning all the time we don't stand still from the time we're born to the time we die we're always learning and evolving and and part of that nutrition weight loss fitness journey is allowing the brain to evolve learn new processes learn new skills I love all of that and that's such a perfect ending to all of this because it probably is the most important as well because that's understanding that this is a lifelong process it's not a one and done it's not a six-week transformation so with that if you want to find Dr Gary Mendoza you'll find him at Gary Mendoza on Instagram at Dr Gary Mend on Twitter and through stages of change is there anything else that you want to plug? No, um, other than I've got, I'm going to retire from teaching next year. So I've got one more, well, two more workshops that I'll be doing. One in November, um, and they're online for coaches that are interested. 5th of November, uh, we do them online via Zoom. So I've got one in November, and my final workshop that I'm going to teach will be uh, at the end of March. So get in now if you want to. So if you're a coach listening to this, I don't know how many coaches are out there or how many personal trainers are out there, but I highly recommend you doing this as well to add to your skill set because without without understanding the stages of change and how to change people's behaviours, even though you're not the one that can actually change it for them, you evoke change through guiding them, then I highly recommend you pop onto that and get right on board. Otherwise, if you are someone that just is struggling in the process, go and find your way to Dr. Gary Mendoza's Instagram. And he puts up a lot there that is easy to understand for anyone, not just a fitness professional. So with that, I thank you more than anything for coming on. And we, you will hear us, hear me in the next episode. Don't forget to rate this, please. It means the world to me. It will get this out there more. I don't do ads. I don't do plugs. No anything except just giving you my best guests that I can and putting their work out there. So with that, thank you for listening and you'll catch me on the next one.